welcome back to a two-year episode in the making. Not only are we approaching the two-year anniversary of everything shutting down, but we're approaching another significant anniversary for our main topic of today's episode. But before we dive into that, uh, yesterday, so this would be March 8th at the time of recording, was a very special day. Particularly special for one of the four people in this podcast cohort. And I think we know who that is. Dean, what was yesterday? Yes, hello. Uh, well, yesterday, what did I do? Uh, I had some breakfast. Uh, I went on a walk. That was nice. Uh, hmm. Yeah, no, nothing really to report. That was interesting. Oh, my mistake. I got the wrong person. Uh, Chance. Oh, okay. What'd you do yesterday? Why, why was yesterday so important? Uh, yesterday was important because unlike the rest of last week, I spent maybe five hours watching Elden Ring rather than four. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's so, pretty good. That was a big uh, deal. Yeah. March 8th, as everyone knows, is Elden Ring Day. And yeah. that's the only thing I think that was going. Megan, did you play Elden Ring yesterday? I didn't. But are you guys telling me you didn't spend the entire day honoring the queens in your lives? Excuse me? No, I'm uh, actually anti-colonialist. Yeah, I don't really like bees. Not, yeah. a, not a fan <laughs> of the monarchy, really. Well, as of tomorrow, when you're actually listening to this on the 10th or 11th, um, is will also not be yesterday. But yesterday, from today... <laughs> <True. laughs> Damn. Facts. Bitten facts. <laughs> it was International Women's Day. Oh. Um, famously two years ago on the podcast we had our friend john come on and we recorded on international <laughs> yeah, women's day and yeah. he berated me and then he was never allowed to come back again um, <laughs> that's right it's he fine to berate me on any other day but not on ladies day yeah so, every every international women's day megan is allowed to remove one of us from the show permanently Mm. Yeah, so yeah, fucking watch out, you three. Year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, last year on International Women's Day, Burger King tweeted that a woman belongs in the kitchen, but only if oh, she wants God. to. Which and is one of the all-time. That was, Megan has that was really Burger King since. Brand tweets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, hilariously enough, on International Women's Day in 2020, Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert, when asked about if he's concerned uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, laughed it off, rubbed his hands all over the table and microphone, and then tested positive for COVID. Oh, yeah. That was crazy. Uh, well, <laughs> that has the nothing to do down. with women, so be quiet. You know, um, the, <laughs> some, would silence, say, some would say he had women brain in that moment oh wow. why would they say that that they shouldn't say Who that, would say that? <laughs> yeah. all right chance oh, you're know. you're creeping up to be the one that gets perma banned from the podcast this year <laughs> thank god um, i avoided that <laughs> so uh you guys maybe you know this i but i didn't know this so i thought it was curious um but international women's day is actually started as a socialist movement huh. um it was the socialist like women's group of America, like the the uh, Socialist Party of America, who declared the first National Women's Day in the U.S. and that was in 1909. Um, DSA Sims at it again. That's right. <laughs> well, it was the women in the movement that declared <laughs> oh, it, but gotcha. <laughs> um, it became extremely popular all over Europe. They had conferences in. Stuttgart, Germany, um, for its first gathering in 1907 of the International Conference of Socialist Women. Um, and then so after the U.S. declared National Women's Day, they thought, wow, this would be a really great holiday to do an International Women's Day of. Um, and that and is why we have International Women's Day. Megan, do so, you want to hear something interesting about one of those, not the first conference, but a, a conference that took place in Germany around that time? So you mentioned um, that they had sure. it in like, Pubs? Well, at a certain pub in Berlin, a, a young, oh recently returned from the First World War man by the name of Adolf had some mm. pretty crazy ideas at the International Women's Day pub celebration. And the True. rest, mm. they say, is history. I think Jesse's also banned from the pod now for telling lies. Uh, um, well... <laughs> Speaking of war, the um, international like socialist uh, women's movement was also very anti-war before World War One. A big part of uh, International Women's Day for a while was protesting against um, what they saw as an imperialist war, which was World War One. 
they were also protesting for better uh, working conditions. They saw um, the needs of bourgeoisie women and proletariat women as very different. Um, and they argued that basically like there was too much focus on the needs of bourgeoisie women, which is like extremely <laughs> different from the working women at the time. Yeah, thank uh, so God it- that changed. I, I found it super interesting. Yeah, and that's actually interesting because then after World War II, International Women's Day sort of like wasn't very much of a thing for a long time. Um, but after World War II, they specifically tried to distance it from its socialist root. So I just wanted to bring that up. I don't have very much to say about it, but thank you, socialist women, uh, yeah. well, for making I think this up. There is one account uh, on Twitter where, of course, you know, the, the real politics happens. Uh, that is honoring this tradition uh, in that it just incessantly dunks on all of the brands uh, and all of the big companies who post an International Women's Day, you know, like, Picture. Uh, like, oh, we, yeah, we appreciate like our, our female employees and all the work they do, blah, 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 by just quote tweeting with the proportion of a dollar that the women <laughs> make there compared to the oh, men. That's genius. Very yeah, good. My prof showed us that today. <laughs> I will say the funniest one is for like a week, RVC, their profile picture on Facebook was a female lion. And then like 8 a.m. this morning, it was back to the original lion, which really made me laugh. Not it's even class. 24 yeah, hours isn't supposed to be They're supposed to get a whole month, too. Like gay people get a whole month. It was. It was uh, I feel like women 20, should be getting a whole month. I'm sorry. In 2011, Obama was like, oh, this month of 2011 is women's month. But it was oh. just for oh. 2011. So oh, I, I didn't see. get to continue afterwards. But it was yeah. like National Month of the Woman or something. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because like there was <laughs> not very much like a talk. Chinese zodiac. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's not very much talk of International Women's Day for a really long time, and then the like holiday or not even a holiday yet. I don't really know what it <laughs> not is. A Just a day to think about women was resurrected in like 2001. Um, almost a hundred years after it first started. Um, and they do to give them props. They have on their website, the, the like start of it talking about, um, like obviously women's suffrage and then say they do have the socialist roots of the day. Um, but there's so many funny facts. I have just like this history.com article pulled up too. And, um, in, it says in recognition of its importance, Lenin founder of Russia's communist party declared women's day an official Soviet holiday in 1917. Um, which no one else did. But. And he was shot by Mark David Chapman. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's true. Cool. <laughs> uh, I would love to see uh, Lennon posing naked with y- Yoko Ono. Now that would be a picture. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what his ass crack looked like. I feel like he had a Hank Hill ass, kind of. Like There wasn't much yeah, to I him. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. that's what happens uh, when your brain's yeah, too stuff big. Going on, though. That's right. Yeah, all of, all of the juiciness went to his big old brain, yeah. left the rest of his body bereft. That's why me and Jesse have huge donks. <laughs> that is actually true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I do think that we should remember the roots a bit more, and also it being an International Women's Day. I feel like so much of the focus is on like upper middle class white women, as it always yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really should also- be a day. About like working conditions for women in the global south, because like, like especially with like clothing manufacturers and so much of what we consume is made by like really poor women in the global yeah. south. And I we feel should like be thinking about that. It could have been like a, um, or the if the focus was turned on solidarity with like working women worldwide, I think it would be hugely impactful, right? Because like you saw the turnout for the what was it the Trump one. Oh, I don't God. even. I don't even fully the women's understand March? that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, the, was that also International Women's Day? Yeah. No, that uh, was just in no, protest that was like of January. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, I will say this year the great thing was NATO, like the official NATO account, tweeting out pictures of female Ukrainian soldiers with the Black Sun insignia. Which I saw that. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Uh, women be Nazis. forever, baby. Yeah. Well. Thank you, Megan, for actually a like a very interesting history lesson on International Women's Day. I did not know yeah. it had that much actually too. Yeah, history to I, it. we we didn't expect much from this bit, but well, when when Megan said I have a bit about Women's Day, I was like, oh, she's gonna do some like insult stand up comedy, and I was I was <laughs> I very excited for used, that. Maybe to me, bit is just a short amount of time because <laughs> I'm not good at thinking of funny bits. She wasn't so. coming yeah. into the riff zone for uh, International Women's Day. Day. Yeah, the demilitarized riff zone. We're working on that. 
<laughs> All right. Speaking of looking back, it's time for us to cast our minds back to one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, way back mm-hmm. in the halcyon days of spring 2020. In fact, it was the first episode we did back after COVID shut everything down initially because we weren't really sure how we'd be able to record a podcast in person with the various COVID restrictions in place, especially with where we were recording being like a university building. Mm-hmm. And the first episode we did back was about a cheery subject, as always, the then brand new Nova Scotia shootings. Which, that episode, of course, we are shocked, rocked to our core by an onslaught of just miserable news, but especially related to that of Nova Scotia and the shooting that killed 22 people. So it wasn't a very focused episode, it wasn't a very detailed episode, and I think it's time to make amends about that because over the last couple weeks we've started to see uh, a slow, let's say, maybe forced hangout of information related to the Nova Scotia shooting. There's the Mass Casualty Commission and they've been doing an inquiry. And with all the news of truckers and war in Ukraine, it has understandably kind of gone under the radar. So what I want to do today is provide a, at at present, so as of March 9th, 2022, the most updated and accurate timeline of events, talk about before, a little bit during, and a lot of the aftermath, and then Mm -hmm. try to get to why we think this happened. And I also wanted to compare it to the American contemporary shooting that is currently the largest one in their history, the Las Vegas one. And Mm -hmm. it might sound a bit crazy, but there are a lot of weird parallels that I I want to kind of highlight uh, while talking about this. I I do remember uh, when we were talking about this originally, I feel like you know, me and Jesse were so close to jumping off the deep end entirely Yeah. Um, with like the tinfoil hat. Like this was all an op. This was like, you know, known for a very long time. And the police just like but knew about this and tripped up. And, um, you know, we tried to hold ourselves back because like we didn't have all the information. We had a lot of information, a lot of uh, speculation was going on around those types of things. Um but I feel like since time has passed, like so much of that information that we were like, should we say this? Like, I don't know if like it's necessarily true or not, like is really coming to light in the inconsistencies yeah. regarding this event. Yeah, um, I've got a lot of that. And to be fair, like in doing my research, I've I've definitely highlighted things where I'm like, this is just kind of subjective. This has not been confirmed. But there's some things where it's like, oh, yeah, this is confirmed now. And that's yeah. uh, mind-blowing. Yeah. So, And and I think, I think um, you know, for all of our <laughs> – for all of our Ukraines, right, mm-hmm. we get one – Nova Scotia here on the on the podcast where hmm. bold, bold <laughs> move. I don't know if we're right what on this that either. Mean? That means that we're 100 percent correct. Yeah, that means <laughs> everything we get wrong. This one we're gonna. Oh, be right. I see. I thought you were trying to draw a parallel. <laughs> no, I mean like for our opinions here. Oh yeah. Um, no. You know. Yeah, like all of like you know the smoke and mirrors like black ops stuff that like no information ever comes out on. We're yeah. right about all of that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just when like you actually like facts come to light, you can't uh, you can't expect us to get those right all the time. I'm not going <laughs> to stuff that we'll never ever know. Like yes, you got to trust stuff, us. The stuff that's coming out is actually crazier than a lot of what I had assumed, and I, I have created like what I I think this is also perfect because it ties a lot of loose ends from this show. It covers a lot of ground. It covers the bikers. It covers the RCMP. It covers the police violence. Our it favorite covers, people. Yeah, there's a lot of like this is a, another greatest hits one. Uh, so let's just dive in. June. Wait, Jesse, before you dive in, yes, I will say. A lot of times you reference the RCMP episode, but we never actually uploaded it, and now ah. I think it's lost to time. So our listeners have, in fact, never heard it. But well, we can we, we can do another. We can re up because I'm sure the RCMP, especially after this inquiry gets released, are going to have uh, even more things to answer to. So we can come back to that. Oh yeah, but the totally. RCMP. Uh, just so you, TLDR, evil, uh, evil. Cool. That's all there is to say. Yeah, and like functionally have been evil since their inception. (laughs) Literally, the reason they were created was to chase indigenous people off the land so they could run a railway. That is exactly why they were created. Yes, sir. Start as you mean to go on, I suppose. 
June 2010. So we're going way back here. This is the earliest known instance of Gabriel Wortman being in the news for something, let's say, iffy, where he was investigated by Halifax Regional Police for threatening his parents. So he basically threatened them in like a domestic setting, said he was going to shoot them. Uh, no official action was taken, <laughs> which yeah, good interesting. start. May 2011, so less than a year later, Truro police receive a tip from an unnamed source via email, which also, about Gabriel Wortman's stash of guns and his, quote, desire to kill a cop. The tipster warned about Wortman's recent stress and mental health issues and said he always kept a handgun close by. This was transferred to the Nova Scotia RCMP, but it is unclear what action was taken by them. I think I know what action was taken by See, them. See, and, like, the the first bit where, like, you know, some, like, you know, middle-aged white guy threatens his parents. I understand the cops not giving a shit sure. about that. Yeah, but, no, Like, once, once a guy is threatening cops and nothing's happening, that should raise eyebrows. And yeah, that's, the fact that's that it's an the anonymous thing they do. email... About, like, oh, he's a mental health issue and he has a bunch of guns. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, uh... Which, by the way, the stash of guns has been confirmed independently by, like, a hundred million people. Like, everybody involved in this case is like, oh, yeah. Like, he was stashing guns for years leading up to the massacre. Like, that is now a known fact. So, RCMP decide not to investigate. Uh, this, to me, I think, might have been when he was brought into the fold. Because I don't really understand why everything that happens afterwards just continues to result in nothing. Because two years later, in the summer of 2013, a former neighbor in Port-a-Peak, which is where the massacre would take place seven years later, reported Wartman to the RCMP for assaulting his spouse and having, quote, a cache of illegal firearms. The RCMP declined to take firmer action due to not receiving a complaint from the partner, which is very sad, but not really uncommon. Partnered violence mm-hmm. is an extremely difficult thing, yeah. uh, especially for the partner. The spouse or the neighbor ended up leaving Porta Peak after Wartman became more aggressive and threatening to his spouse in response to the complaint. So Gabriel Wartman chased this guy out of Porta Peak by threatening mm-hmm. him after he reported him for you know, assaulting his spouse and just having tons of illegal firearms in his house. And the RCMP... Did nothing. Mm. Interesting. Uh, April 2019, so a year before, one witness describes Wartman going to a gun show in April 2019 in Maine, asking a person whose name is redacted to, quote, do him a favor and go get the AR rifle at a cost of 1250 U.S. dollars. Is that how much they cost? Like, is that a running price for an AR? I think that's a running price if you don't want it to be traced back to you. <laughs> and it is a legal firearm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's one of those, like, serial numbers removed. Now, to be fair, this one, one witness has not been independently corroborated. But considering the stash of guns he had accumulated before and the stash of guns they would find at his house, seems very realistic. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that, uh, as I will highlight later... Gabriel Wartman, according to people in the community, so in Porta Peak, was the local drug dealer who was off, often making runs down to Maine to pick up product to deal in Porta Peak itself. So I think oh, this is okay. very realistic. Fall 2019, Gabriel Wartman purchases a vehicle that is the same make model of an RCMP cruiser. So it's an old decommissioned cruiser that's been painted over and everything's been changed. But he would spend the next few months outfitting the vehicle to make it essentially back into like working condition. So to resemble an RCMP cruiser and he buys this from a police auction, which Mm -hmm. once again, okay, (laughs) we're not even at the massacre, but in the years leading up to this, you have a guy who's been reported multiple times to the RCMP for having illegal firearms, threatening people, assaulting his spouse. Now he buys an RCMP cruiser and you're telling me you had no quote special relationship with this guy. These are so many fucking red flags. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I, I get, I can imagine the buying the RCMP cruiser thing isn't hugely out of place because a lot of people do use sure. police auctions. But with the previous knowledge of, like, all of these complaints being made <laughs> yeah. and how he wants to kill a cop and stuff like that, and the police just didn't do anything. Like, they obviously had his name somewhere. Somehow, yeah, right? And, like, this is a small town. Like, everyone would know about this, no? Yeah, this is port a peak Nova Scotia. Yeah. This is not New York City. Like, the guy's saying he wants to kill a cop, buys a police cruiser, and the RCMP's just like, hmm, okay, that's chill. Like, there's Threatens- nothing... 
Yeah, like threatens to shoot his parents, is reported yeah. multiple times for having caches of illegal weapons, and is told that he's under immense stress and has mental health issues. Like, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, so like guys. Their, their summer residence caps out at 250 people. <laughs> he killed 10%. Like everyone would know about this guy. Yeah. yeah. March 30th, 2020. Gabriel Wortman withdraws $475,000 of cash from a Brinks depot in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. McLean's magazine would note that the size and style of withdrawal was consistent with how the RCMP had paid their informants in the past. The RCMP still denies any special relationship with Wortman to this day. No normal person can do that. No dentist is withdrawing that amount of money from, like, was the Brinks, like, fortress? Yeah, Yeah. he's not going to a a bank. bank. Yeah. No, like, that I think that's hell, the most man. insane thing. Because if you want to withdraw large amounts of cash from the bank, there's ways to do it. And I doubt any of well, them officially are. Yeah, there's a are. lot of paperwork and it takes a lot yeah. of time. You can't just yeah. drive up. Now, uh, Jesse, I don't know if you know this. Do you? Do we know where that money is now? Yes. So that money was found in the trunk of his vehicle. So it's been taken in as evidence. And as I'll note a little bit later on, the RCMP, when performing a thorough search of his residence, or rather what was left of it after the massacre, also found an additional $705,000. The dude had a cool milli. Yes. He had a million dollars worth of cash either in his vehicle or like in his house in, quote, hidden compartments. What the fuck, man? Yeah. Well, we're hot. <laughs> uh, don't worry. We'll get to that. There's, <laughs> um, I have all that right. all noted. April 18th, 2020, 9.50 p.m. Gabriel Wartman assaults and restrains his common-law spouse, Lisa Banfield, after the pair had returned home from a nearby party. Wartman would grab several guns, ammunition, and load it into his replica RCMP vehicle, with Banfield at the time locked into the back seat. Uh, thankfully, Banfield would manage to escape the vehicle and hide out in the woods nearby, nearby, but during this time, Wartman would set his house on fire. Ten minutes later, at 10 o'clock, he returns to the party and opens fire. So the first 911 call was recorded at 10.01 p.m., so one minute after this started, where Jamie Blair, the wife of Greg Blair, who was victim number one, called to report the shooting and immediately said, it's Gabriel. So within one minute of this massacre... They had positively identified the shooter. Mm-hmm. So Jamie and Greg Blair would unfortunately be killed, but their two sons were unharmed. They were hidden and barricaded in a room. Gabriel Wartman, after shooting the Blairs, set fire to the home. So five minutes later, he walks up and shoots Lisa McCulley and then would kill two more neighbors by 10, 10 p.m. At 10, 15, the Blair children flee the burning home and run across the street to Lisa McCulley's house. So they literally ran past the dead body of Lisa McCulley. They were taken in by her two children. Four of them would huddle in the basement and call 911, where at 1016, they said that the gunman had, quote, a massive gun, and this is the important thing, a car that was just like a police car. So from the article I drew this from, which is from City TV Atlantic, the children referenced the perpetrator by his first name. They correctly advised that he works in Halifax as a denture person, they indicated that the perpetrator would blend in with the cops because he has a cop car. Now, now, Jesse, do you mind clarifying how much this car looked like a cop car? Like, was it just the fact that it was the same model? It is literally done up to look like an RCMP cruiser. So it has the decals of a RCMP cruiser. It is right. an almost identical model. I would say the only difference is I'm sure the like the sirens aren't identical because you aren't going to be able to buy <laughs> that specifically. But mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, if you are just a civilian and you see this car, you're going to assume this is an RCMP vehicle. In the first 15 minutes, we've had the guy identified by name. They've said it's the denturist from Halifax. They said he has a massive gun and they said he has a cop car. All of this is known within the first 15 minutes of this. Just keep that in mind as things go on. 1021, children confirm they're hearing gunshots every 30 seconds, which is just a horrifying thing to think of considering the small community. Uh, During this time, Workman is once again positively ID'd by the children saying it's Gabriel, once again reiterating that he works in town as a denturist. Around this time, Workman fired upon two of his neighbors who had driven closer to inspect his burning home. These two people, thankfully, were wounded but would survive. So 1026, you get the first officers arriving on the scene. Constable, Constable Stuart Beselt 
who has said that he wants to testify for the inquiry, which I thought was good. I'm glad to hear that despite the RCMP saying they don't want their officers to testify, the first responders yeah. do plan on doing so. That's good. Did you did you see the the reasoning for yeah, why the RCMP? They don't want to be re-traumatized. Yeah. The RCMP, you know, like Oh my like, god. Even if you believe that cops should exist, which I don't at all, if they yeah. do have to, I think that they should be able to withstand the the mental trauma of doing their job. I feel like yeah. if if you like, you know, like mental health is important and whatnot. Uh, and, you know, being traumatized by work, sure. Uh, but it is, at the end of the day, their job to mm-hmm. do this and to provide evidence uh, in the court of law. And if they're unable to do that, then they're unable to, uh, you know, hold the badge, I'd say. But, and, you know, we, yeah. we do have to think about their feelings. That's very And important. also, Rich from the RCMP, which notoriously has scandals involving, like, workplace harassment, sexual harassment, oh, and just, yeah. like, toxic work culture being like, yeah. well, you know, we're putting the mental health of our officers first. Yeah, well, they're okay. trying to fucking blow mm-hmm. me. They're trying to improve. They're trying to do yeah. better. They sat there, copped ass down, and learned. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1026, they arrive on the scene. Uh, it's important to note that, like, this timeline, there's no exact, like, at this time they saw this, that, and the other. Like, it's very unclear considering there's no real video. It's mostly just phone calls and witness testimony. But essentially, when these officers arrived on the scene, they found eight houses on fire. There were bodies littered throughout the area, some of which were in the streets. And at 10.39 p.m., the kids hiding in the basement once again identified the shooter and said that he was now, quote, on the move. So they saw the car leaving the area. Uh, This was one of the saddest details to me. So a man by the name of Corey Ellison was in town visiting his brother. He saw the burning house and walked out to take pictures of it. During this time, he was shot and killed by Gabriel Wartman. The final picture on his phone was a dark photo of the ground, time stamped at 10.39 p.m. Jesus. Which is... And what's also important to note, this is information that came out March 9th, 2022. This was... The officers heard this one final rifle shot and assumed it was Gabriel Wartman killing himself. And, quote, that seems to be the basis for their assumption that he'd killed himself and nobody seems to have even remotely considered the idea that he somehow managed to leave Porta Peak undetected. So they saw his house burning, they heard a single gunshot off in the woods, and they assumed that he had killed himself. And that their focus, and I can't really blame them for this, that their focus should just be on the town itself, putting out the fires and looking for survivors. But what I can blame the RCMP for, not so much the individual people, but the organization itself... Uh, is that around uh, 10.48 p.m., one of the RCMP officers was told that there was a back road that would take Wartman out of town. So if he was still alive, he would have taken that road, which the guy reported. 11 p.m., Gabriel Wartman pulls behind a welding shop. So he he left around 10.40 and went to DeBerre. DeBear, Nova Scotia, which is about 24 kilometers away. So he pulls in behind a welding shop where he like basically spends most of that night in his car, just kind of laying low. At 1116, Stuart Basselt radios an RCMP risk manager to ask whether some kind of emergency broadcast might be made to warn civilians. At this time, the RCMP says they were using a 911 map to call as many people as possible, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Because you have an emergency response system. They didn't even call this an active shooting situation. They said it was a firearms complaint. And this is when they knew the fuck? that eight buildings were on fire and at least, from what they could see in the area, at least three people were dead. Mm-hmm. Mm. Bear in mind, they had also been told by 911 dispatchers that this guy has a cop car and that he's been shooting people every 30 seconds. And this is how they responded. A firearms complaint, no emergency broadcast. Mm. Shortly before 12 a.m., the following exchange occurred between an officer and a civilian. You know there's another way out of there, right? The officer replied, yeah, we know. Just get out of here. Just go. So once again, they've been told twice now that there is a back road out of town, and if this guy is still alive, he has taken it. And the response was, yeah, we know. Just go. Which, Mm. awesome. (laughs) That really, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. So now it's April 19th, 1 a.m. 
The RCMP issues internal memos to Nova Scotia stations about Gabriel Wartman, essentially saying, you know, this is his deal, this is who he is, what he looks like, what he's driving. So they're they're inserting the or sorry, issuing these memos internally, but they have still not warned the public. Mm-hmm. So Wartman, who made it into DeBear around 11, leaves around 5.40 a.m. At 5 a.m., the RCMP finally go to that road that they were told about to set up a checkpoint. As we know now, more than six hours after Gabriel Wartman had already used it to escape the town. By 5.43 a.m., Wartman's on the highway. At 6, his partner would come out of the forest and be taken in by police as a key witness, having survived that night just kind of off in the periphery. At 6.30, Wartman enters a home in Glenholm, Nova Scotia, and and kills the two occupants, two people that he had known prior. So he breaks into their home, shoots them. At 8.02 a.m., the RCMP, nine hours after this began, finally announced that they were dealing with an active shooter situation in Port-a-Peak. Let's remember, Gabriel Wartman is not in Port-a-Peak and hasn't been for six hours, eight hours Mm -hmm. at this point. At 8.53, Wartman is finally publicly identified as the shooter, which I don't know if you guys were uh, online at that point, but I remember seeing this and like the slow release of details was one of the most insane things I've ever seen where it went from like I remember checking Twitter the night before and it's like, oh, firearms complaint in Port-a-Peak. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever, like no big deal because I have a friend who lives out east, so he's always retweeting stuff like that. And then the next morning I checked around nine and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, like multiple people are dead. This is the shooter. He's still on the run. And I was like, what in the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to reiterate, multiple people had ID'd Gabriel Wartman as early as two minutes after the shooting had started, which included his name, occupation, and eventually the vehicle he was driving. The RCMP was informed about a back road out of town, and rather than immediately checking that road and area, they based their plan of attack off a false assumption that the last rifle shot they had heard was Gabriel Wortman killing himself. So they didn't bother checking until the next morning, hours after he'd already left. Now we're into the final act of this 13 hours of madness. So at 9.30, Wortman leaves the house in Glenholm, setting it ablaze, the ninth house he has set on fire. At 9.35, he shoots and kills a random passerby on the sidewalk. At 9.45, he goes to another home of two acquaintances. He knocks on the door, and he essentially tries to pretend that he's not Gabriel Wartman, but rather an RCMP officer. So one of the things he does is he knocks on the door and he says, Gabriel, come on out. We know you're in there, which is a very— Jesus Christ, that's chilling. Yeah. And and it's important to, like, remember these small details when we talk about how this is perceived because— I think it's clear to say this is not a random insane act and that there was a great deal of like co- cogency and coherence in his actions. Like he knew what he was mm. doing. Mm-hmm. Further to add to that point, around 10 a.m., Wartman performed two random traffic stops, killing both drivers. So he literally just turned the lights on, pull people over, walk up to their driver's side window and shoot them point blank. That I think is, oh my God. When yeah. I heard that, it was like, that's like the scariest, saddest thing I've ever heard. Like I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I would be dead. But it's seventeen so minutes sad. later, the RCMP tweeted out warnings about Wartman and his fake cruiser, something they had known for twelve hours at this point, uh, and and technically oh, had known yeah. for years. But yeah, but like <laughs> now they are aware it's in an active situation. Yeah. At ten forty eight, Wartman pulls up to an RCMP cruiser near. Oh man, <laughs> Sh- Shemnectady, Nova Scotia, so Shemnectady, one of the small communities, and fires at Constable Chad Morrison. Morrison survives the shooting and drives his car to a ambulance station. Wartman takes off in the other direction and slams head-on into Heidi Stevenson's cruiser. He opens fire, killing Stevenson, taking her sidearm, and setting both cars on fire. He would then, like something out of GTA, literally walk up to a random person driving by, carjack them, shoot them, and take their vehicle. Jesus. Wow. At eleven twenty-six a.m., did he have like gasoline on him or something? Like, how's he lighting all this stuff on fire all the time? He, like, I, I'm not hundred percent sure as to how. Like, I would imagine he's just getting whatever fuel he had to hand. I'm sure he had some originally in his vehicle, or he had some mm. on his property, but that I'm not as sure of. I don't even think he needed to necessarily use gasoline for the houses, but for the car, he probably just tossed a match in the gas tank. Would be my assumption. Mm. So at 11.26, Wartman stops at the Irving Big Stop in Enfield, Nova Scotia, where he is spotted by two RCMP officers who, after making a positive ID, open fire and kill him. 
His death is announced 14 minutes later at 11.40 a.m. Over the course of 13 hours, Wartman had committed over a dozen acts of arson and killed 22 people, including badly wounding several others. So over the course of 13 hours, Gabriel Wartman did something that up to this point had never even been fathomed in Canada. Yes, we have had mass shootings and like spree shooting incidents, but they were oftentimes kind of localized to one area, mostly schools. Uh, for instance, you know, Ecole Le Pen, or sorry, Mark Le Pen at Ecole Polytechnique comes to mind, which uh, is something worthy of an episode in and of itself. One of the worst moments in Canadian history. But this is not only a mass casualty incident, but one that is spread across the course of like three communities and 13 hours. This is like jaw dropping, unbelievable stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's the complete timeline of those events. But there's perhaps even more interestingly now the aftermath. So shortly after Wartman's death, uh, the RCMP searches home and finds $705,000 of cash stashed in various secret compartments throughout the house. In addition to obviously the illegal caches of weapons. June 3rd, uh, Nova Scotia's premier calls for a public inquiry into the shootings. The RCMP say, well, let's maybe not do that. Like, very resistant to any calls for an inquiry. Mm-hmm. At the time, people assumed it was just because it would be revealed that they were acting incompetently. But then, on July 27, 2020, court documents were unsealed, detailing police interviews with witnesses who claimed that Wartman was a drug smuggler who provided people in Porta Peak and nearby economy with drugs from Maine. These witnesses alleged that Wartman had stockpiles of guns and drugs, along with false walls and hidden compartments in his properties. The RCMP confirmed three days later that Wartman had kept hidden compartments in buildings, but they were <clears throat> unable to corroborate the drug smuggling claims. Mm. Yeah, as if they wouldn't have like any form of intelligence on that. Like, what made me laugh is on July 28th, 2020, Bill Blair announced that a public inquiry would be launched starting immediately. The Mass Casualty Commission is assembled. Yeah. So oh, yeah. that was one of those things where it's literally as soon as those documents came out, they were like, oh, Shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Time to change course, guys. <laughs> yeah, that, that one's not sliding under the rug so easy. For folks listening, Dean had to go because he was pinged by his CSIS officer for getting too close <laughs> to the truth. So he has been taken to a, a secret black site where he will be set straight. Yeah, thankfully my uh, recording setup here is uh, insulated EMP proof. So <laughs> they weren't able to EMP bomb my my setup just yet. On November 24th, 2020, the Fifth Estate uploads 13 Deadly Hours to YouTube. It's a 45-minute program that covers the chronology of the event. It's fairly helpful, but it, of course, notably does not explore the rumored connection between Wartman and the RCMP, but it does mention that at certain points during this crisis, the RCMP like opened fire on a fire station because they believed Wartman was inside. Oh, yeah. Oh, Which, yeah. I forgot huh. about that. Yeah. Mm. Great work. See, that one I don't think is necessarily like conspiracy. That one is just the RCMP being incompetent. That yeah. one I believe wholeheartedly where I'm like, yeah, no, that that's just them. Well, this uh, being whole thing, like job. if nothing shows like horrible incompetence, like what the hell? So throughout 2021, there wasn't much in the way of updates just because the commission was, of course, pouring through like thousands upon thousands of pages of like testimonies and evidence. But in February 2022, the commission begins to call witnesses for the inquiry. The RCMP union infamously states that, quote, frontline officers should not be called to testify for fear that testimony would re-traumatize them. It's so sad. As we have mentioned, some of the officers involved, including Constable Stuart Baselt, have come out and said, yes, I would like to testify about what I saw and what happened. So, hey, you know what? Credit where it's due. So, These findings are set to be released, of course, in a redacted format. Like, the full report is supposed to come out in May of 2022, I believe May 1st. But uh, we will see how that goes. That being said, now that we've kind of gotten the chronology and we've met the key player, I want to talk about, like, the response to Nova Scotia. Do you remember, like, what the response was in the immediate aftermath? Because I do, very vividly. Um, From what I remember, there was a lot of talks about how Nova Scotia was like 
the destination for bringing guns across the border. Is mm-hmm. that? Do you guys remember that? Am I making that up? No, oh, that I've is never correct. Heard it, but I sure. Well, see, Nova Scotia used to have a very big outlaw biker subculture. It was kind of cracked down on in the early two thousands. But uh, also worth noting in. March of 2020, the RCMP conducted a raid on the Red Devils Motorcycle Club in Halifax, who are a Hells Angels subsidiary. And it's worth noting that because if Gabriel Wartman was working as an informant, which I certainly believe was the case, because and, and here's why. It would certainly make sense, given that we had multiple witnesses saying that he was kind of the drug like hookup for mm-hmm. that community. And I'm sorry, if you're dealing drugs in a small community, you have to be affiliated with a larger organized crime organization simply because they would not let you do it otherwise. That likely means – and once again, this is more speculative, so take this with a grain of salt. But if that is in fact true, he was a drug dealer, which it seems given the <laughs> predilection for having guns and secret stashes of cash in his multiple properties, I don't think it's unrealistic to say Gabriel Wartman could very well have had ties to organized crime. Is that out of the – like beyond the pale? No, not at all. And also I think uh, there was an interesting, I, maybe there it was unsubstantiated, but wasn't there claims that only a few days or a, maybe even a week before this all happened, he was pulled over for like a traffic oh, violation in the I middle of nowhere? That. Yes. I don't know if that was ever, I, I don't remember seeing anything about it since, but I yeah. remember, actually that was in the McLean's article. Yeah, yes, yeah. that was in the McLean's article. And it's important. I'm glad you brought that up because that's going to play into, I think, kind of my <laughs> attempt at an explanation. But so we're operating under the assumption, and this is not like a complete random shot in the dark. This is a pretty educated guess that, yes, Gabriel Wartman had some affiliation to organized crime. Yep. And if he did, he was likely affiliated with the bikers because the bikers like to bring drugs and guns. That's the things they run. Famously, the mafia, which we covered in our episode on the Quebec biker wars, are mm-hmm. they don't want to get directly affiliated with drugs because it kind of gets rid of their cover. They want plausible deniability. So although they'll help with the transfer and the movement of drugs, they do it through third parties. As it was in Quebec, they use the Hells Angels. And if you have a larger organized crime group, which, for the record, in Maine, there is a massive northeastern organized crime family, then Wartman would have connections with the Hells Angels. In March, the Hells Angels get busted. Shortly after that, we have Gabriel Wartman getting pulled over by the RCMP and issued that ticket slash message. The McLean's article goes into more detail. Yeah, there there and, wasn't a ticket, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, and people but, were like, this is not a road that is monitored by cops. Like, there would be no, no reason why an RCMP officer would just be on the beat in the middle of this back road. Yeah, he literally pulled him over to relay information if he was pulled over for that. Like, which at is all. which is common practice. Like that's Absolutely. not out of the realm. That's how a lot of these things happen. That's how a lot of information goes out. It's like, oh, we're pulling you over because you were going a little fast, sir, and then they'll do whatever business needs to be done. So, do you remember what the reason was given for why Wartman had such a large withdrawal of cash? Do you know what? Or do you remember what the media said? Uh, no, I don't. They said that his decision was motivated by a fear with of basically global financial destabilization since mm. COVID had just kind of shut everything down, right. which sounds ridiculous. But to be honest, at the time, that was quite plausible. Mm. If only and he knew like, about oh, Bored Apes at the time. That's right. You know? he, was good, he was big NFT guy. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, we are minting the first Gabriel Wartman NFT. Oh, don't uh, say that, that. That is our project. Uh, Megan, it's no. International Women's Day. He's allowed to say that. That's right. So he starts um, hoarding the money. I don't money. know if that's how that works. $425,000 of cash, which was found in a duffel bag in the back of his car, and then an additional $705,000, which was found in his property. So that's a mm-hmm. million dollars of cash. And also, what I, I oh, do want to say, though, taking out money in these types of situation, if someone is having like a genuine paranoia break is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. What is uncommon well, is like, for someone brinks. Yeah. yeah. The, the uh, uncommon thing exactly. is someone who's a civilian getting from a brinks depot and also the amount of money <laughs> that, that there much. is, yeah. Yeah, is, is An absurd. absurd amount of money. And shortly after, let's remember being pulled over for like on a random dirt road and not being issued a ticket. Yeah. So what yeah. 
what I think, and once again, take this with a huge grain of salt because there is no motive. In fact, this, much like Las Vegas' shooting, never had a motive released, but I think my theory, so once again, this is not confirmed, this is just my thought, is that Wartman was involved in that raid on the Hells Angels. He provided mm-hmm. information as an informant, likely to save his own neck. Either Now, there's two ways you can read this. Either he was operating his drug and gun running thing independent of the RCMP, which is very possible. Mm. And essentially, when the jig was up, he turned crown witness, basically, became an informant, tried to earn his way out. Or if you're much more sinister in your – or maybe pessimistic – you could very rightfully make the assumption that he was dealing drugs and guns on behalf of the RCMP because it is not uncommon for law enforcement to be extremely corrupt and be involved as their own organized crime. Now, once again, that you can choose to believe. I think it's more the first, but I would not – second would not be outside the RCMP's realm of possibility. I think regardless of that, I think – you can easily point to the fact that the RCMP had way more knowledge than they were letting on. Oh, 100%. Um, regardless of whether they knew he was dealing drugs and weapons or if they were actively involved in his dealing drugs or weapons, I believe like it would be ridiculous to say that they were ignorant to him being like a danger to the community. They knew something was Okay, up. like the RCMP say they – like having an informant is mm-hmm. not – like against the law, like that's something that they're technically supposed to do, right? So would it just be that they wouldn't want to share if he was an informant of theirs because he became a mass murderer and they don't want to be like associated with him at all? Do you think that's like if he was an informant, like would that be why they wouldn't say? Usually what it comes down to though is that if – so if as an informant, right, you get a lot of like legal leeway to do illegal things in order to (laughs) Mm -hmm. keep your status – when you're technically not supposed to, because it's essentially the police turning a blind eye to crime. Blind right? eye, yeah. And 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 that looks horrible on the police. And since he's dead, nobody can testify against that, right? So, I but think- they also do share cases of other, like past cases. Like, granted, I'm sure they wait a long time, but they do share stories of when they've used informants. Like sometimes they're proud of themselves. But I feel like yeah. actually maybe that's more that they're proud of themselves when they go undercover themselves and less I would proud also about say, associating yes. with criminals. Yeah, It's important to remember when these revelations were coming out, July of 2020, mm-hmm. about a month after George Floyd was murdered by the police and we started to see an actual discussion about what defunding or potentially even abolishing the police would look like. And the RCMP, who have a long history of corruption and are, like, not a very popular kind Mm. of – like, they do not have a high public regard. Yeah. For them to be affiliated with the deadliest spree killer in Canadian history at the peak of that movement – I think that factors into why they were fighting this so hard. But essentially what I believe – Wartman was running drugs. He informed for the RCMP. He tipped off the RCMP about likely the people he was working at least it partially to run drugs and guns with, which is the yeah, Hell's Angels. Probably, probably a um, like a plea deal type thing where it's exactly, like I'm going. I'll tell you names of people higher up than me, and uh, the timing. If you let me just keep doing my thing. So suspicious. This is March of 2020. When a lot of this shit starts happening, he 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 gets that he informs he gets that meeting on the dirt road. He takes out four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars of cash and then less than three weeks after that withdrawal, things start happening. Now, I will say this doesn't necessarily explain why did the shooting. No, but this does crystallize that kind of connection to the RCMP as to why he did the shooting. I think it was a combination of perhaps being under immense stress having a psychological break, but still, and this could hint at maybe (laughs) some kind of greater training. Maybe he was trained by the RCMP because he certainly had enough wherewithal and uh, coherency to know to disguise himself as an RCMP officer, evade detection, and target a lot of people that he knew in both communities. Mm -hmm. Sure, he did kill random passersby, but a lot of the people he killed, especially in Port Peak and then in Glenholm, were people he had known prior. Right. And the question is then, why did he do that? And here's the thing. Kind of hard to look for motive in any mass killing. Like sometimes they leave a manifesto and it's for some like 
incel reason, but it's sad. I don't know. I, it's just interesting it just, that he was so coherent because what I – and, like, remember, he didn't kill himself. Like, it seemed like – he was literally fueling up his car. We have no idea how long this might have gone on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was trying to flee the province. I don't know if he was tying up loose ends. There, we're, Realistically, we're never going to know what prompted the massacre, but we have enough information about – the buildup that certainly hints at a greater connection. Anyways, yeah. I think at the I time, think, th- I think too though one one yes. moment if you don't mind. No, no, please. <clears throat> Is that like getting a cop car decked out? When did when did you buy that car? Twenty nineteen, fall, fall of twenty nineteen. So he had what half a year, and, and yeah, about six months. And if you look up the car, it's decked out. It yeah, looks like a. It fully, looks like yeah, a like he's car. obviously obsessed. Yeah, which which is something else. Six that months is a long for. time, right? For this to be like, I don't know. I think the actions themselves might have been spontaneous, but he also did say talking about like how he wanted to kill a cop, like yeah, ten years prior, nine years prior. So it it, it seems more premeditated than just someone slipping. That's but, the thing. But the thing with uh, his actions being very cohesive and like him knowing how to bypass or how to trick police officers a lot of the time and also the public. So like the, the shooting in the forest thing um, is a pretty easy trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> to be like, well, why would someone just shoot in the forest right after all this happened unless they were going to kill themselves? Right. Like that seems like a pretty easy way to get around that. Um, but also like showing up and being like, Hey, I'm an, the RCMP and I'm looking for me essentially. Yeah. Knowing uh, that they had released his information. So he was clearly like paying attention. But it, it, it reminds me of the fact that the RCMP, all of their old training manuals are actually like public domain. Um, and they're very easy to find and they're very easy to read up on. So if he did actually have like an obsessive behavior towards the police, which I think the cop car shows you know pretty pretty readily that that's true um it wouldn't be too hard for him to to find these books and articles about how the police behave in certain situations which reminds me of the fact that i ended up reading that the the rcmp in their official handbooks say that lying to the public is okay if they think it'll further (laughs) their end goal like with whatever operation they're doing um so it's literally in their like guidebooks to be like you know, you can totally lie to the public. That's a okay. So um, I remember this being phrased as like it was compared to two events. Some people went so far as to say that this was Canada's nine eleven in the sense that it was like this de- grand death of innocence, which I don't think is apt. But I remember them saying it at the time, like this was an yeah. unexpected attack that completely shook like Canadian values to its core. But we had motivation with nine yeah. eleven. Uh, also, more aptly though, people wanted to compare it with the Las Vegas shooting, which took place in October of 2017, which goes just yeah. beyond the fact that both were the deadliest shooting in the respective country's history. Right. And also, like, there are some bizarre parallels. Both were kind of, like, unexpected, out-of-nowhere acts of violence on, like, an immense scale, both perpetrated by old, rich, white dudes. Now, Paddock's connection to, like, law enforcement, military, intelligence community is intentionally very vague and will never know Whereas Wartman, as we've outlined, is much more direct, although officially unconfirmed. But I mean, okay, <laughs> the RCMP doesn't have as as large of a disinformation team. Exactly. Yes, Megan. I just want to say spoilers for the Batman. So if you haven't seen it, skip yes. ahead like two minutes right now, or turn the radio off. But can you guys believe that the ending of that movie was just like? A mass shooting. I was like, this seems yeah. like upsetting was, for American awesome. viewers. They lived through those things. I don't know. I just yeah, feel with like very similar so ideology many, behind it. A yeah, lot it was, yeah, I feel like there's so many mass shootings that at this point, like every American's been in one, which is obviously not true. But I was just watching it, being like, oh, this is unpleasant. Was yeah, it, it was Las Vegas and Hurricane Katrina, the two most. Yeah, I like, remember. What the was fuck? it? It was either like Kentucky or Houston. But do you remember the? the van like the rv that was set downtown that just kept saying on repeat over and over oh, again that was nashville yeah that, that was, was nashville 20 oh, i thought that was like a fight club reference no it was no. it was literally just like playing uh audio that then just said exploded. like this is going to explode 
yeah. and then it did, and it it shook the whole entire street. Yeah, that was insane. Yeah. That was Christmas twenty twenty. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that movie—that's what reminded me of it because of the vans. And I, I did love the movie a lot. I just yeah, thought like interesting for your superhero movie to have like incels shoot everyone in a stadium ending. I was like, what the fuck? No. Hey, hey Chance, like, you know what like, caused that RV to explode? What? Ah, it was uh, made. It was made by Samsung. <laughs> <laughs> the RV was made by Samsung. Is that another Norm Megan, McDonald can we keep joke? That? I don't no, know. No, Megan, that's a Dan Ninen joke. joke. The two oh, kings okay. of comedy, Norm McDonald and Dan Ninen. Who is that? <laughs> He's the millennial comedian. His parents are from Japan and India, so he gets his sushi from 7-Eleven. Oh, my God. I forgot about him. <laughs> yes. You guys uh, know a lot of people. Damn. Woo! Okay. Okay, okay Megan. Back yes. to the Anyways, story. Jesus Christ. Yes. So Stephen Paddock, uh, past is kept intentionally <laughs> obscured, but, you know, it's not unrealistic considering a lot of, like, <laughs> attempted domestic terrorists are like in contact with the FBI in the past. So it's not outside the realm of possibility to think that there was like something going on with Paddock. But once again, Wartman's connection to the RCMP is much clearer than Paddock's connection to say like the FBI or the CIA. Both perpetrators hoarded weaponry and cash in the lead up to the shootings. Both shootings are at present still devoid of any motive or official explanation. The only substantial developments that came from both of these shootings was the banning of bump stocks in the United States and automatic weapons in Canada. Right. Now, admittedly, here is well, where the paths divert. Good. Sure. I mean, well, the bump stocks is pretty much useless, but automatic yeah, weapons. But is ours. Yeah. Uh, the Las Vegas shooting, still the largest in history, was like out of the news cycle, maybe a week and a half after it happened. Yeah. I think like, it was the sushi, the brother talking about sushi. Uh-huh. That really did I mentioned in. that. So no motives provided. No inquiry is still launched. The people closest to Paddock were quickly zapped away from the public spotlight, including like that security guard who provided weird testimony. And of course, Stephen's brother, Eric, who talked about sushi comped, who shortly afterwards was uh, taken in on charges for having child pornography on his hard drive. Even I never even wasn't. heard of that. That's insane. Uh, yeah. He also made sure to note he's like this actually isn't my hard drive. I literally don't know what's happening. Uh, So read into that what you will. By November 2017, so a month after the shooting, the only real ties to Vegas was the Vegas Strong hashtag, which was used by the UFC and the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Now, I will say part of this is due to the political culture in the U.S. and, of course, mass desensitization to gun violence. Mass Mm -hmm. shootings are extremely commonplace. And look, if nothing came of Sandy Hook, nothing was going to come of Vegas. Yeah. Once Sandy Hook, they just got away with doing nothing. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, it's over. It's, Literally, there I, f- is- I find it so funny when like conspiracy dudes are like, this is a false flag to take away our gun rights. And it's like, dude, if they wanted to, there's been some <laughs> horrible events in the U.S. Yeah. Like, you think they, like, what, a what, false what, what flag else can they do? They killed dozens and dozens uh, yes. of people. Literally, what, uh, what, what the Alex Jones fuck? was peddling have, Sandy Hook. Have you Hook not was. heard this? Uh, unfortunately, I horrid. will so mention cruel. the Sandy Hook denialism at a very, very quick end bit, which will be a lot more lighthearted, I promise you. But it does make that reference to that. doesn't sound like yeah, you. No, no, no. You'll see what I mean. Uh, it's just dumb people. Uh, so that was not the case with Nova Scotia. This dominated the headlines for weeks. And despite the RCMP's best efforts to suppress it, a public inquiry finally was launched. Now, what will that lead to? Well, folks, that's a question I pose to you. What do you think is actually going to come out of this? And what do you think is going to happen? Is this just going to be a paddock situation where it's quickly kind of glossed over and that's it? Or do you think there's going to be like a reckoning with the RCMP? I think uh, um, who's who's the guy who said he was going to testify? Uh, Constable Stuart Baselt. Constable? I look yeah, forward so to your responder. indoctrination into the Dorner Club. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not quickly, getting any of these references. Yeah, no, that's oh fine. Let's just Do you want it. me to tell you, Megan? No, 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 no. Let's just leave it. We'll yeah, see okay. if it makes, uh, makes the oh, cut. Oh, it'll make the cut. Yeah, okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't you continue. Google him later? You can, I'm just going to Google him call. right now. But, so, yes, maybe maybe. I'm getting a conveyor belt company. Yeah, that's it. He invented the conveyor belt. So Stuart Baselt, he, look, yeah, his name sounds like Belt. Conveyor Baselt, that's all I'm saying. Yo. 
but yes, Chance, uh, any any other additional thoughts about what you think is going to come from this? Uh, fucking nothing. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> that is very fair. <laughs> I think we're going to get some really interesting books in the next decade uh, that go really into depth with all the connections. Otherwise, I... I by me, yes. I, I don't think anything's going to happen. If something does happen, I will be uh, gladly incorrect. But uh, like every other fucking situation out there that's ever happened like this, um, especially when they have ties to the police and stuff like that, uh, cops in the Justice Department protect their own. Uh, yeah. Nine times out of ten. So I will say uh, the last time, like not the last time, but the RCMP has been rocked by like big inquiries and commissions before. And our episode on the October crisis and the FLQ, mm. or maybe that was more still just the RCMP one. Either way, after the October crisis, there was the McDonald Commission, which was launched to look into how poorly the RCMP handled it. And at the end of that finding, they were like, oh, you guys fucked up so badly that they took away the intelligence wing of the RCMP. Now, of course, they turned it into CSIS, its own intelligence wing. But it was at least funny to see the RCMP like lose, at the time, their total control over law enforcement Actually, and intelligence. Yeah, I wonder how much um, the federal court system really likes the RCMP. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder, I think, I think I wonder they'll how- sell them out. Like the federal courts would sell out the RCMP, you think? Yeah, because they I just think they've done them it before. Like a local, they, they would just like reframe it as a provincial policing initiative. So like the RCMP might be, you know, s- symbolically neutered, but they won't really go away. I think that's the best that we can hope for. Is yeah, be like, I, uh, the RCMP, we are defunding you, but we are also now funding the Azov Battalion, Nova Scotia. You will be handling all. <laughs> All policing matters from here no, on. No, they're out. just gonna say this is the CRMP, and this is a new organization, and it has nothing to do. And no, don't ask us. We didn't just and hire everybody over. This is and the, look, the exact same thing again. A, <laughs> I think, either way, we'll see a symbolic like slap on the wrist for the RCMP, and uh, they will uh, continue to be evil. Or more likely, it'll just be like, yeah, he was just like a, a weeb for the RCMP. That's not our fault. Let people enjoy things. He's, he was oh an RCMP aboo. <laughs> yeah, there you go. What about you, Megan? Do you have any final thoughts on this in general? Other than just, it's like the saddest thing I could think of ever happening. It's like so sad. <laughs> like, oh, it's yeah. oh my tragic. god, it's so tragic. But yeah, I'm. I don't know. I'm curious what will happen. I hope. I like the families get some answers. Um, the families get some, or at least money. some sort of closure or money. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, straight out of the RCMP, horrible, too. horrible. Take it out of their budget. Yeah, and I'm sure God. you guys will keep me updated because yes. you do post every time something happens. So, well, to be fair, yeah. I mostly post because this is like I, I am not obsessed, but I am very invested in this because this is one of the most insane things I have ever lived through. And I'm like Megan, who was born in 2010. Uh, mm. I was alive yep. for 9 11. <laughs> So this is this is right up there. I was alive for 9/11 in fact. And yeah, also I can't you don't even have judge to lie to our in... audience. <laughs> How old do you people think I am? Um, yeah, I think you just turned 15 or 16, right? That's yeah, quote unquote too young. We've already okay. told Cesis about Dean. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um but I can't I can't judge you Jesse in um grade 11 and 12 I really just for some reason learned every single detail of the Luca Magnata case so oh you know, yeah that's fair that was crazy everybody has it. their thing that thing I was, was in high school crazy. everybody yeah. has their thing what's your thing in Kingston there's Magnata wines and they refuse to change their company's name <laughs> <laughs> that's oh yeah sick. I didn't think about that <laughs> which is so funny <laughs> they should pounce on that why should we change it he's the bad one <laughs> <laughs> I love it. it. Well, do we have any closing thoughts? I I have one (laughs) final thing, just because I want to tell Chance this, because I know he hasn't heard of it. Please. Chance, are you familiar with something called Control Your Narrative? Um, (laughs) No, I don't think so. Would you believe that Control Your Narrative is a wrestling company and that it is a wrestling company that is pitched as being like anti-SJW and one of the things they have is the, quote, rant room, where a wrestler goes into a room with a fan, and for three minutes, the fan can say whatever they want to the wrestler without fear of reprisal. What? No yep. black wrestler is going to do that. <laughs> None. So 
choosing. If you want that, just go on a fucking forum. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. They say keyboard warriors. Now's your chance to say what you've never dared to say before. But if so the guy is not allowed to beat you up, then people would. Would they not? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Isn't and that also the, the whole point that's of like draw. a keyboard warrior is that like there's no repercussions? Well, Chance, there's no repercussions for this because if you pay for a VIP ticket, you can yell slurs at a wrestler in a closet. So I just wanted to mention this because it's the <laughs> ultimate it's the ultimate sign of culture war. So this company was started by two ex WWE wrestlers who were released during the COVID-19 furloughs. Uh, and these two guys are interesting individuals. Remember when I said I'd talk about Sandy Hook nihilism? Uh-huh. Well, these guys have some interesting social views related to Sandy Hook. Related to the COVID vaccine, related to the pandemic itself. And recently, their big acquisition was a wrestler who has been blacklisted from most companies for being a Me Too guy. And once on live television, as a female <laughs> ring announcer was standing in the corner, he walked up to her, climbed the turnbuckles, and placed his dick in her face in front of hundreds of thousands of people watching wow. television. Also, uh, for a second, I thought you meant he was blacklisted because he supported, like, the Me Too oh, no. movement. Yeah, because yeah. He's no, not that, that side mean. of it. Yeah. No. Okay. So this company is my favorite thing. They talked about how they're going to be, like, this big alternative. They ran their first show in front of 200 people in, like, the basement of a You're bar. You're kidding me. Amateurs <laughs> get that many people. I get more at my shows. Yep. Uh, and one of the funniest things, and I'll, I'll have to send you the tweet because I did find it. They talked about the rant room and how the only person that was called into the rant room was the Me Too wrestler. And the rant room was like <laughs> a black medieval door that opened up into like a bathroom supply closet. Oh, no. So Aww. you see this like big imposing door and they open it and it's like a shitty plywood shelf with like paper towel on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard. So I wanted to mention control your narrative chance. I think if they ever record a show, we should watch that for this show. Oh, easily. Yeah. We'll come back uh, with a full report. Oh man. Like it is one of the funniest things. I've I'll buy ever a pay-per-view for it. And I, think uh, I just wanted to, to end it. off on that. We need to do a media episode again soon, I think. We need to watch something oh, funny. We do. You know what? I agree. It's been a it's been a tough couple weeks. Uh, hey, when you hear this show, if you have any suggestions for media we should cover, admittedly, yeah. we love CanCon, but we're not too picky. Feel free to shoot us a message on Instagram. That would be wonderful. Yeah, Instagram or our email. Just hit us up. All that's in the description of each episode. So We'd love um, to hear from you guys. Yeah, please. Yeah, and if you just want to chat, hit us up. Yeah. But, uh, Soon, soon we actually uh, some big news as of Ooh. I think next week we will have like a community discord for people to use. Oh, I'm in the awesome. works. So excellent. Yeah, that'll be uh, also in the description when that's live, which will probably be launched next week. So look forward to it. I'm saying it at the end of the show just for the folks who actually listen to the whole hour. Woo. <laughs> you get a All special right. surprise. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.